Speaking of fame, because I was just saying how the, our po- the podcast precedes us. The other day, I learned that I got cited on TikTok. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. Literally, uh, a friend of mine who's Gen Z messaged me and they were like, oh, my friend saw this. You're on, you're on TikTok. And I was like, what the hell does this mean? Yeah, and it was because mean, I know it was because I, I, I co-wrote this uh, an essay that was in Transgender Studies Quarterly. Okay. That was explaining why the UK has become such a hotbed of like transphobia and trans exclusion. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with the like eugenics and like the legacies of colonialism and racism and stuff like that. And like this very deliberate ignorance on the part of uh, transphobes, basically. Posh and middle class white women in the UK have had the power to define who is a woman for such a long time. Like it's definitely like sort of bound up in this very imperial mindset. Mm. Anyway, so like this person actually cited us and as their response to someone asking them, so why is the UK Turf Island? And they're like, oh, well, the best article I found this co- on this topic is Horbury Yao 2020 and TSQ. Wow. And I was just like, and there's like, here are the main points. And I was just like, my God, we have made it. And then I sent it to my my co-writer and they were also like, oh my God. And yeah, yeah. you're excited. You're, you're TikTok famous. I know. Next so, thing you know, you'll be putting, you'll be translating your uh, messages on TikTok. I know. I do, I do sort of wonder and I'll have to like do a little dance but or something. <laughs> Very awkward. But yeah, I mean, it's a far way off from, you know, your viral TED video, but mm. <laughs> Is it virally? I don't know. It's it's been a while, but yes, this is interesting. Um, you've been doing a lot of great things in the UK in terms of trying to um, advocate for trans rights. So, yeah, I I really hope that things will continue good. Good. In case our listeners aren't aware, in our backlog, like obviously we've we've had a lot of queer PhD divas on the show, mm-hmm. and Thanks one of our previous Don ones, yes, yeah, on on alt. On Alt Act is Meredith Toulousen, and she also her memoir is just recently out called Fairest, and it's about mm-hmm. her as a, a trans woman from the Philippines who's also albino and thinking about how colorism and racism and transphobia sort of portrayed her like you know structured her experience. But sorry, the <laughs> reason why Liz and I are speaking today, you're listening to PhD Diva, is a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide, is because we have finally watched The Chair on Netflix. Finally, we finally watched it and we mm-hmm. wanted to talk about it together. Um, and we actually watched it separately. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that might also shape some of our experiences that we might talk about today. Because you watched yeah. it with a group of other people, right? Yes. Specifically, well, majority women of color academics, mm-hmm. um, also in literature. Well, I've, uh, one of my friends was white in our history, but the other two were both black women who were also junior faculty in literature. So definitely, uh, definitely yeah. right on brand, right at right where it's right on the show, right on the nose. Yeah, like just sticking it to <laughs> us, basically. Yeah, and um, actually, I watched this um, with my partner. So he's a he's a cis male, and Ooh. that was just on its own an interesting experience because I was really emotionally triggered, like very early on. Mm. And was just like unhappy, and and I was like predicting things, and he was like, "Have you seen this before?" I'm like, "No, I haven't. I just know exactly what's about to happen." Yes, or, I've just lived it. Good. He just kind of had a, a response to it that was completely different. I think a lot of that was gendered, um, because mm. none of these things really made sense to him. 
Interesting. So I guess I, I would have thought that his experience as a man of color in academia would still have some like similar experiences, but sorry, like I don't know. Right. No, I, I, so I don't think it was, but the other thing is that's one thing, one access to look at it. And the other thing, um, which I would say is that when you do a lot of activism work or when you are actually kind of like in the spotlight, if you're not in the spotlight, if you're kind of just like riding low, like you don't get those experiences either. Mm. And I think there's certain ways in which, um, men get to not be in the spotlight. They don't get to become like the arc of the narrative. Like no one's trying to um, make you their mission statement that then draws the responses positive or negative from everyone else because people Mm -hmm. are trying to rally around you. I'm not sure if I'm like saying that correctly, but. No, um, I can see that there's a way that like women of color and particularly black women end up having to become figureheads. And I think possibly mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, as you say, like this gendered aspect, it's not just because we're not white. It's also because like, there's always these expectations of, of care that we're supposed to give and that we're, we have to be bound more closely to it. So whereas like men in this like masculinized way, always assumed to being like a little bit more like being able to separate public and private. It's like this very 19th yeah. century dichotomy. You get noticed when you want to. You care when you want to. And when mm-hmm. you don't want to care, you actually do get to drop in the background and kind of not um, care, uh-huh. not be that visible. And I think there are ways in which you don't always get the choice of your visibility. Now, that's not universally true. I think you know there may be some listeners who say, well, no, I'm, I'm this identity and I've been also very visible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just kind of reflecting on um, are the, the viewer experience that, that I was talking about, but maybe we should actually, you know, that's really narrow and we yeah, can go larger. Yeah. Like maybe, so a little bit of background, I feel like most of our listeners are somehow can know about academia, but for those who don't <laughs> like maybe the, the announcement of a new show on Netflix was something that was barely made a blip on your radar because obviously Netflix has new stuff all the time. But I do think that people were really excited that like Sandra O oh was mm-hmm. uh, being at the forefront of another series. And I think that's what sparked a lot of interest. And it was funny because as soon as it came out, then I had like multiple friends obviously message me to be like, Zion, I think this is your life or something like that. Um, yeah, and it's a how did that feel? It's it's weird because well because this was all before they saw the show, so there really wasn't anything saw the show. besides the visuals to say. But literally, since Grey's Anatomy came out, I mm. had people, including complete strangers, telling me that I looked like Sandra O oh and acted like her. She does not. <laughs> I know this includes Shyla. I will have to say when okay. Rebecca started making Shyla uh, watch. Um, <laughs> Shiloh's been on the podcast a couple times and is a very good friend. But like Shiloh, I remember called me, like actually phoned me to be like, Zion, I started watching the show and there's a character that you really like. And it's it's not just because you're both Asian. I was like, is it Grey's Anatomy? <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> Okay. But presumably she was saying something about personality. I actually don't, I didn't watch Grey's Anatomy long enough to know. Yeah. To make and that- I- and I could see what they mean. And it's funny, like that even one of my undergrad students here who is um, Chinese Singaporean, she told her girlfriend that, oh, my my tutor is like if Sandra Oh were an academic. And then like a couple of years uh-huh. later, there's like Sandra Oh as as an academic ends up mm. becoming a show. And I was like, where she's the, the what the first woman and the first woman of color and person of color to be the head of her department 
mm-hmm. where like it's just her and a junior black woman, Yaz, who are the only people who are not white in this department. Mm-hmm. And I was the first person of color and woman of color to be permanent faculty in my department. Mm-hmm. Uh, although coming this year, I'm not going to be alone. Um, but yeah. yeah, so there were there were resonances as to why I felt obligated to watch this. My mm-hmm. partner is kind of ridiculous though, because he's like, "Why are you all going to be watching this show when this is what your work is?" <laughs> and I'm I was like, like "Shut up and give me wine." <laughs> I know. I was like, Just be a waiter. <laughs> Well, he he went away on the weekend anyway. So then oh, I, had, I, see. I see. had had my friends over and we had um, two bottles of wine and lots of snacks and stuff like that. And we took breaks when we needed it. But anyway, mm-hmm. so the plot is that she becomes head head of this department. And but as she says at one point, like it's sort of like a ticking time bomb where like there's all these problems going on with um, admissions. And then there's ends up being like these like viral controversies and also this whole tenure case of the uh, of Yaz that end up imploding in different ways. And it's mm-hmm. definitely one of those things where like she was set up for failure. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a comedy drama, but definitely for a lot of women of color that I know or have seen posted online, it's like, ooh, it just resonates because, because of that sort of painful familiarity, the laugh, cry kind of react. Right. It's a comedy drama, but really the it's drama. And the only reason it's comedy is because you – almost have to pretend like it didn't happen and you have to laugh your way through it because you're trying to still keep your career and stay afloat and move forward. Yeah. So you're hiding all of your drama with comedy. And for other people, it's like, oh, that's funny and it's serious. And I'm like, no. Yeah. And it's interesting because it turned out like one of the writers is, I think, Asian American. Yeah. And she okay. did, yeah, and she did do part of her PhD in English at Harvard, but then, um, didn't get the degree mm-hmm. um because and initially she was also asian one female yes oh my god i felt so bad for her like mm-hmm. i feel like there's definitely something about the position of the graduate student and the vulnerability of the graduate student that was sort of like gestured to and i wonder how many people were picking up on that my favorite mm-hmm. character was the daughter though oh really why is that because the way that she just like spoke truth so you're a doctor, right? Yes. Then why don't you help anybody? Oh, oh I guess this right here. Or there's a whole bunch of other ones where she just like is absolutely like incisive and hilarious and like just calls out bullshit. Um, mm. But I also like the dad saying like talking about Bill, which is this mm-hmm. mediocre white guy who takes up way too much space in the narrative. And he's like, why do you in, in Korean like why are you obsessed with this crumpled man? And that's the, the phrase that me and my friends kept being like, the crumpled man. Yeah. This the sucks. crumpled man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought that that was also a really great, this idea that the Bill character was like, why is he taking up so much space and time in these lives? And I thought, well, that's, it, it's, I thought it was both like something about the show and like the narrative of the show, but also that's what happens in real life, whether we yes. like it or not. Um, it's like, so it was like almost a meta point, you know, maybe they, mm-hmm. maybe this was meant for the white gays and gays, not gays, but um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was meant to be, you know, something about that. But I think the other reality is that even when it's supposed to be about a person of color, it usually ends up being about um, someone else some some white person anyway yeah like somehow the example that's coming to my head was like the black clansman 
Um, mm, I didn't see this. watching. Okay. Um, the, it was, yeah. Um, Spike Lee, but like, even though the main, the black guy was the main character, it really, the person who had the most development and growth was Adam driver's character. Mm. Mm. And yeah. And so when I, when I didn't watch it, the reality is like, I tend to not watch movies in that whole genre. Mm. I like the help, uh, green yeah, book. No. Um, I get a whiff of that happening. I'm like, nope, never mind. I don't need it. <laughs> I already know what's going to happen, and I don't need it. I, I don't need to be told this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the chair was interesting because I, you just saw all of these characters and these archetypes in faculty that were both like, oh, I've seen that before. Um, I see it now. And um, really interesting to kind of see it being portrayed outside of self. So like, and, and, you know, one thing I also think is interesting is, like, the way people responded to having um, an Asian woman being presented like this. And it kind of deals with the hypervisibility of being a minority. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a bit meta, but it's this idea that, like, people were so excited to finally have, like, a, um, an Asian woman be the lead. And it didn't strike people very well that you had this character then also be, but why is she so like not in control? Why is she being shown being ineffective as a leader or why is she shown falling for the weakest white man possible? (laughs) You know, like why is she doing all, why is she, you know, failing at all of these things? And I think for some people it was really uncomfortable and like, they didn't want to see, they didn't want to see someone like them portrayed that way Um, because they feel like they got, they get so few representations that they wanted her to actually be like extremely proficient on her job, taking no, you know, like no prisoners, just perfection. Mm-hmm. And I thought that in the conversation was also interesting or like they thought there'd be negative consequences for, for like there are women I knew who just, they didn't want to deal with colleagues kind of asking them questions now because now they seen the chair and now they want to talk to them about their feelings or something, you know? So I don't know if you had that kind of experience, but I, I, I saw people responding in these different ways. Um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting because it's like there's certain lenses that people tended to adopt, like like basically judging it based on whatever realism and some others by like, I guess, aspiration. Mm-hmm. I think you're describing the aspiration one and just the, I think it's such a bind of minority representation that like mm-hmm. sometimes people just want the representation to be absolutely perfect in a way that has to be flawless and then mm-hmm. also not interesting and also not reflective of real life and ends up being a type of respectability politics. Um, and so like, yeah, it's like, you have to be so, so shiny and, mm-hmm. you know, perfect that when, where's the conflict? It just doesn't become interesting. You have to be superhuman. Where's the space to be flawed? Um, and there's the Vietnamese American writer, uh, Viet uh, Than Nguyen, uh, who won, the Pulitzer, the sympathizer. And he has this great thing where he talks about for minoritized people, what we don't need is like, we don't need like perfect representations. What we need is like a plurality of them. We need like a richness of, so that, that this can be more we, mm-hmm. rather than just like, you know, having the scraps and like obsessing about like, what did this get right? Or so there, you mentioned like aspiration and then like the realist. And, you know, I'd also heard comments where people said, it wasn't just because they wanted her to be perfect. They were saying that she would have done a better job, that their experiences were that they wouldn't, that she wasn't, that she would have done a better job as a woman of color than what was being presented, mm-hmm. which is slightly, a little bit different, right? They're just like, no, 
there's no way this person would have been that inept, like incompetent. Um, which is also kind of saying like, I know what people like this are like, and I know that you're not doing it correctly. So you did mm-hmm. not actually represent, like it, you didn't even represent an, an, a, a position of women of color and leadership that I even recognize because uh-huh. none of us are ever that terrible. Mm-hmm. But I guess like the question also is like, to what extent was she terrible? And to what extent was she actually like actively mund- undermined? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, I agree. It's yeah, both. yeah, and, and so that's I think the sort of uncomfortable aspect of it. And I also feel like perhaps um, a part of it is also probably like the sort of model minority mm-hmm. um, status that I think that I well I tried to avoid a lot of the think pieces because I didn't binge <laughs> it as fast as a lot of friends, mm-hmm. but I did see like a bunch of well, Asian diasporic friends posting about it, and they felt like the thing that they most took from it is that they have to treat their black colleagues better. Because I do Ooh. think like that, because that was sort of the, the the take, and also from an, some of my other friends as well, saying like you know that non-black anti-blackness ends up coming in, and that and so that was something that I was thinking about a lot when I was watching it, which is like that um, Sandra O's character sort of assumes that things will go for Yaz the way it did for her, mm-hmm. even though she was minority, and she's like, but the thing is that she didn't full anticipate how misogynoir would be so different. Yes. Yeah, I, so I, I, you know, I'm not in English, but I really resonated with Yaz's storyline. Um, and in particular, like some of the interactions with the, with the chair, because I, I made this comment before of kind of, and I've been playing chess a lot, but thinking about how like she's being treated like the queen and the pawn, like the queen can mm. move anywhere and do anything. They're so adaptable and powerful on the chessboard. They're, they're your number one player. And that was effectively how she was treating Yaz. Like we need to uh, promote this person. We need to do this thing. We need to support her. But she was also treating her like a pawn, which is like, we're going to put you out there. Mm. Sometimes even by, by yourself, like hanging. And I'm going to use you to prove the points I need to prove, or like, I'm trying to do something and I'm using you to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, hoping you have the flexibility to do that, but then it's not always how it works. And so like my lens on this was seeing the times where she was saying that she was supporting Yaz, but then using her to kind of like two birds of one stone, you know, like, oh, your class is great but I'm going to try to help this other professor by making him take over your class. And yes, I know that he's terrible and you have some very valid points, but I'm going to ignore all of those points and make your situation worse. And I'm going to tell you it's making it better, but it's actually making it worse. Or mm-hmm. the chair knew going in that um, the Dean was not really very pro the suggestion of having Gaz have this distinguished lectureship. And so to me, she knew that this was not a good idea. She's been, I mean, you have the inclination. And then she made an announcement to try to push it. Mm-hmm. And that put Yaz in the face of danger in my mind. Yes. Because yeah. she doesn't, Yaz doesn't know this, but you knew this. And so when it actually came to fruition, that surprise, surprise, like Yaz can't do this. You set someone up to fail. Yeah. Um, you caused harm to this person. And I can see... I just see that happening so much where like sometimes people come into leadership and they want to prove a point. They're like, Oh, I, I, I'm going to value diversity now and I'm going to be the one who does it. Right. And then what happens is like, you're contending with like your new sense of power and then what that means to actually be in power. 
which means that you have to negotiate or they're like, hey, white supremacy is still here. There's still structural mm-hmm. things. And you being empowered does not change the system. But yes. you still put those people out there hanging. Yeah. That's so that's what really resonated with me. Like all of the co- the entries of harm that you put this person through when you could have actually just been more straightforward about what was happening, what you can and cannot do, how fast things can move. And yes, the actual resistance is to having Yaz being uplifted as saying that. Or the last thing I'll say about this, because I've been talking for a long time, but she was, uh, the chair was trying to talk to the senior white male colleague who was, hey, you have to write a tenure letter for her. Are you writing it? Is it going well? Those, those moments. And her argument would be, Yaz is great. She's brilliant. And she's a new face of the department. She's a new face of English. And I remember thinking like, like you're also again, putting Yaz in harm's way because mm-hmm. you know, this person is feeling very insecure and incom- mm-hmm. like out of date, out of touch. And you are telling him that he is outdated. You, this person, you're, you're really saying that like you insulted him to uplift her when the reality is like, that's not how you get someone to write something good about someone. Yes. So you made it worse. Yeah. Because you told someone that she's the best and she needs to represent her because she is the face of something. And there's no better way to tell someone that you should take someone down than putting a target on them and saying they're the ones that need to be taken down. And that happens so frequently. That compliment actually isn't a compliment. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's... That's all really true. I think it's also this, I think it's also something that I see a lot in non-Black sort of Asian activism sometimes where they confuse like Black hypervisibility with power Ooh, as opposed yes. to the way that it's dangerous and has to be tied with different levels of surveillance. Because mm-hmm. like this sort of like reductive, like, be like wait, wait, why do people pay attention to like Asia stuff the way that they do Black lives? And it's like, that's, okay, this is not a zero sum game, but also you're completely misunderstanding that that the visibility of black violence has not actually translated to justice. No. Um, And it seemed to me that she was like, the chair was doing a a version of this is that she thought the simplistic way of like chomping is like, of course, let's stick it to the the old white man. We're going to promote the black woman to be at the front of of this lecture series that usually is just external speakers, but we're just going to put her in there. Mm -hmm. And like, she's going to be the face of this. Like, and on, on paper is this, they probably think that it's just easy empowerment, but it's not actually thinking about the way that the structures of power actually work and the mm-hmm. type of like careful work that has to be done. And as you say, setting her up for failure, setting her up in scenarios that have to that make it inherently antagonistic. Yes. Yeah. And then she en- ends up being seen as the enemy. Like Yeah. When boy. really she's trying to be nice, she's trying to be helpful, she's trying to learn things and become a good colleague, but she can't do that if you're telling people that she's taking over your spot Mm -hmm. when people already may feel like she's taking your spot because there's an unspoken, it didn't come up in the show, but there's usually an unspoken narrative of like this black person was hired for some sort of diversity quota and they're taking a spot that someone else could have had. Yeah. Um, And it even goes to like, sort of like eugenicist race war rhetoric that we saw mm -hmm. with Charlottesville, like the you know replacing replacing us quote unquote being mm-hmm. like white men and that's it, it was basically like an academic version of that they the old white dude with the 19th century American Yaz <laughs> did 19th century American which is also my field mm-hmm. and it was even funny that at one point they even like mentioned that Yaz like wrote a, this an article on one of the, 
authors that I work on. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who is like an amazing Black woman abolitionist, activist, poet, novelist. Um, anyways, and uh, yeah. And so it was just very stark to see them pitted in that way. And especially having the whole seven, this, the one episode that had to do about teaching Moby Dick. And I was like, I'm teaching Moby Dick this term. This is be interesting. <laughs> right. It was, um, it was a lot. And I think, you know, this is actually probably a good segue into like the representation of how the, how the students were represented. in this yes. show. Because I, um, there's a lot to unpack there as well, where, I mean, if we're drawing on this whole realistic versus aspiration, I think there's some other parallel where um, they could both be being viewed as being like what they call the snowflakes, mm. um, as well as being very like proactive and activist oriented. And so like, um, you know, I, I could easily see people thinking of this as being they're overreacting to like they're doing their their justice and but also like I think you got to see like the faculty side of things a little mm-hmm. bit, maybe. And and yeah, I, I just thought it was, it was a lot to unpack. And I found myself feeling both feeling a lot of different things that needed contextualization. Yeah, and I, I think I would really love to talk to some of my students or former students who've watched it to get their perspective because the reactions I've gotten from students, but also other faculty of color has been like really all over the place in terms of how they felt about the representation of students. Like mm-hmm. when I watched it with my friends, we felt like everything the students said was right. From mm-hmm. our perspective, like they're like, I mean, it's, do they really realize what Sandra's character is tackling with? No, but like they, they are right about things like Audre Lorde and the way that the university is also oppressive and like, you know, that she is just citing a black woman while undermining a black woman like that. That is true. Um, but then like I was talking to again one of my my students um, and they felt that it was like a very reductive yes yeah, no flaky type representation um, mm-hmm. but then another of my friends felt like they had expected the students especially the students of color to be represented as snowflakes but they actually thought that they never ended up being flattened out in the in a typical like they thought that there still was complexity so uh, mm-hmm. so I, I'm not quite sure what did what did you think about that um <laughs> I think it was, to me, it was, it felt flattened. Like it felt very, um, um, I would have appreciated more nuance from them about how students are really feeling um, or processing the information because a lot of what they saw were kind of, hmm. I'm trying to think of how to preface this because I think my reaction is more so based on like my experiences and some recent things. And I would say that in the last year or two with COVID and with like the social unrest that's been happening mm-hmm. um, in terms of like George Floyd and um, um, increased awareness of these issues. Um, I, I think I've been in a lot more conversations. Something else that I think is really important to add here is that, and I remind myself of this frequently is that, in academia, we are also in the business of training students and preparing them for like leadership roles or mm-hmm. thinking through situations, which is to say that um, there are times where um, maybe a, a first analysis or assessment of a problem doesn't have the context of like what's go- another part that's going on because they're integrating knowledge they, they are seeing 
And then I think that sometimes when you start to try to learn how to work, or if you if you have the mindset of working in an institution or figuring out like what's going on or what are the challenges that people are facing, um, I sometimes wonder how that could help make a different response. Mm-hmm. Um, where sometimes it just feels to fall flat to me when um, when I'm trying to fix a problem and then I'm being told I'm the problem. And then in some regards, I can even tell I'm the reason why they're, the problem isn't bigger. Mm. And so you're kind of like, I think I, I really resonated from the, the middleman, middle person level of like trying to figure out how to connect with students where I see where they're coming from and I see what they're saying mm-hmm. and I see what stage they're in now in their journey. And then yeah. I'm seeing like what I've learned and then I'm seeing the other BS that I'm seeing on this other end. Um, which I'm also both trying to protect them from, but maybe also help them learn how to navigate mm-hmm. and not always finding ways to make that connection possible. And that is not actually with respect to the chair and like the issue they were talking about with that person, right? So I want to be clear, like what Bill was doing with some crazy stuff um, is more about how I was thinking about my own experiences with with this Mm-hmm. Or how, you know, they went from so easily, like, they went from like, oh, I like, I, I like this professor we're talking to, oh, now you come into the chair, you won't sit, and you give them like a 300 page signed signature letter, um, when like, with no discussion, no talking, and then you just leave, but you give them like this signature list, and it's like, well, can we talk, because I can tell you what's actually happening, and where that signature yeah. would be appropriate, but we didn't actually talk about it, because now I'm the enemy. yeah. Well, I think that we can have a whole separate episode about this where, well, in my mind, it's just the title is what uh, Millennial Academics, Gen Z Students, which mm. I think is a whole thing that we're also navigating. Um, and did I think part of it say made sense. I don't, oh, no, I, mean, I, think I, it, I think it totally did. I think it did because it's like there's this weirdness where on the hand, yes, these problems are structural and we end up being part of the institution. So we, But we end up being the face of it. But because we're the face of it doesn't necessarily mean we have the power of the entire institution, even though we're the face of the institution in a way. And like it's and so we end up being in this very awkward position that especially if we're like the only, you know, minoritized people and then we have to do the diversity work, like you could end up being like the tart you could be seen as a solution, but also then all the problems could be you at the same time. You're both the savior and the scapegoat at the same time. And I think it's difficult to to navigate between that because like students have so many hopes that are bound up in you that they can be very easily be disappointed as well because they expect mm-hmm. too much perhaps. Does that seem safe or reasonable? I think it's definitely part of it. It's just, um, I don't know if this is a good response, but I felt that's I felt a lot of sympathy for really trying to figure out how to best navigate the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what also resonated was, you know how when you start responding to problems reactively instead of proactively and you end up mm-hmm. like digging more, you just get yourself in more and more trouble because yeah. the solution to fix that first one caused another one, or it actually then the one that was resolved is now dug up again. And so it's also really challenging to do. And so in a way, I could see how she spiraled so quickly. Yeah. Because the reactivity is like it. Yeah. 
It's just yeah. so fast. And I feel like, I'm, I wonder, I feel like most departments have dealt with it, especially with last summer that like students were galvanized in really important ways, but then also it necessitated like really fast reactions when most people, most people were not on campus because their, their lives are also falling apart. And then people are trying to put together responses that were necessarily flawed. And then sometimes it made things worse and like things just mm -hmm. end up escalating. And then everyone's world is, the whole world is on fire, but also your people are trying to do these like email chains that end up being antagonistic because people are dealing with so many things. It's just, yeah, I feel like yeah. we definitely had to take breaks because of things like that. And also like the administrative stuff, like I had to take a break because I was just like, yeah, you I'm starting to really sweat and I need to drink some more wine because like just the stress of seeing how these characters are trying to navigate what their work is supposed to be and how they're being perceived and the optics of it and the performance of it. Mm -hmm. I was just like, this is too much, too much right now. Because oh. it looks familiar and it looks like you can see the binds, you can see this and then, you know, you end up having so many days and the hours in the day or you you run into some to the challenges and then the just the the kind of quintessential how do i protect who how do i prioritize my what i need to fix and and what i need to do um how do i help students and am i helping them <laughs> like the idea of like mm -hmm. am i helpful anymore i have no idea anymore i thought i was <laughs> and all of a sudden i'm not you know like so going in and out of leaving in and out of that or not that one time that you're actually not most on top of your words and vocabulary, where if you had been calm, you would have known that that would have triggered something. But when yeah. you're not calm, you say things that are like, oh, crap, that's not, that's a problem. Yeah. Or write things and like, or things that you think are the solution to responding to the student complaint and you try mm -hmm. to explain things, but then they don't like the explanation, but they don't want the actual explanation. They don't want any more explanation, but they say they want, but actually that's not what they want. And you're just like, but I told you why the thing happened. You're not happy with that. I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I just. Yeah. And then what do you do when students are right? Or I'll even make it broader. When you, when someone, when you're in a position of leadership mm -hmm. and it's your goal to be the person who hears everything. And so when someone, one of your constituents, whether it's a staff member, faculty or students comes to you or even the Dean, people that pay us and they say, here's something that happened. Here's a problem. And you always have to do this thing where you think, how do I acknowledge that I hear what they're saying and I agree that in this lens that's a problem while protecting the other interest? Yes. Of like, mm, but in this lens, or this will, you know, this impacts more than just you, it impacts other people. Um, but you still have to kind of make sure they feel like they're heard because if you don't, it's going to spiral. And yes, I think that like trying to navigate so many different um, constituents that have different needs and different timescales is truly challenging. And mm -hmm. nobody likes to hear a, oh, but you have to understand I have to do something else too, right? And that, yes. that whether you're a student, another faculty, a staff, and you saw that happening, all the people, whether it was the students, um, the junior faculty, the senior faculty, the, the the woman right who was in the the closet gym oh yeah office. jean jean joan joan yeah they all had the things and they all had to be done um, yeah the daughter who's like come to my events it's all like urgency urgency and i think that but the dad at some point said like i thought with a promotion means you work less and she's like no <laughs> what world is possible you always work more and it's like oh that's also 
rather familiar. Like I feel like the, or the version I think in the humanities is like, oh, as a student, you always think like, oh, when you get more secure, then you'll be able to have more time for reading. But actually when you're a student, that's when you have the most time to do the reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also the most likely when they'll tell you that the reading is too much or, you know, so the way they respond to the reading is different Mm -hmm. because our lenses are different. Um, And so then how to also say things like, please let me guide you. I may have a little bit of understanding while also valuing that they do know what they know, right? Mm-hmm. To affirm what they know and to let them grow and trust what they know versus a um, another narrative of like, can I guide you? Do you, tr- and mm-hmm. which is about trust. Um, yeah. And I struggle with that all the time because I want both to be true and mm-hmm. both are true. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like the constituents thing, like one thing they didn't even explore, although, which was, was something I was thinking of, it's like the moment when Bill passes by like a student who's basically obviously a, a MAGA supporter who's mm-hmm. then like, oh yeah, yeah, freedom of speech, man. And then he realizes like, oh my God, now like the alt-right is cheering mm-hmm. for me. And like, it's sort of this funny moment and you sort of, he realizes like, oh, he thought that he was like really progressive, but, but what it doesn't also show is like, otherwise the portrayal of the students is like the students being like sort of the stereotype of Gen Z is like very socially progressive. Mm -hmm. But in that department, you will also have the MAGA kids Mm -hmm. and you as the head of the department also have a duty of care to those students. And what do you do? (laughs) That is the thing that like haunts my dreams as the, like the Mm -hmm. worry that I have of like Mm -hmm. when I was a student, like it was very clear that I saw myself as like the who the us and who the them were. But Mm -hmm. then suddenly as a teacher, you end up being have a role where like, you can't just, you also have to, how do you guide students who are white, like, yes, white supremacists, <laughs> like, or who are like, uh, gender pronouns go against my very being, or yeah, I don't want to do this pronoun, yeah. I don't want to know my pronouns, and I don't think you should tell me to, right? There's so many avenues of this, um, mm-hmm. that yes, I have dealt with this issue, and you, you have to do that, and then how do you respond when, like, you tell people, hey, I do have to respect everyone. I have to find common, I, I actually do have to find common ground with the people in my department or whatever leadership role I'm in. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that when you also have people who are like, well, I don't like that you did that. And I think you should only do what I asked you to do. Um, yeah. And then you're like, but maybe we literally have to share a lab space. Mm-hmm. Like I can't cut them off. Yeah. Or now they start to say, yeah. So I think there's 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 lots of ways that this goes. And so when I looked at this, I had an angle for leadership. I had an mm-hmm. angle for complexity. And yes, um, I had this blend of things were so much easier when I was a student to complain, to voice my opinion, because I really did just represent myself or some faction. Mm-hmm. Um, and now things just become more complicated. For complicated reasons, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that then themselves are just not simple, and um, I that resonated with me. And then um, another point here is that even when you, you mentioned this question of is she um, is the chair incompetent or is she being undermined, right? Because there's mm-hmm. another thing happening here, which is that you remember her first meeting, and then someone said, "Oh, we should wait for Bill to come." Oh, yes. And it's like, no, she's the chair now. And so there was so much of like people trying to tell her how to do the job. People kind of like 
treating her in ways they did not treat predecessors. Yes. And even the predecessors experience, like Bill saying like, well, I was head of department. It was fine. And it's like, well, it was fine because you never had a woman of color do this. And you also think that things should just come to her, but they aren't. And you're actually undermining her that way too. Yes. Yeah. Or I thought you were going to be chill with me. And so there really is a thing happening that despite her best efforts, people are actually not responding and listening to her. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's like something I often think about in my role where let's say that as I was trained, I took all the best advice. I did the stuff I net hustled, but at every stage of my career, I've come to terms with the fact that every stage of my career, I have to learn a new skill and I have to like relearn what the new oppressors are. Or Hmm. because I would say that the way I was viewed and my presence in academia was viewed as a grad student was different than it was as a postdoc. And it's different as it was as a faculty because Uh my threat to people is different. Uh My positionality and leadership is different. Um, The, the way I compete, I'm putting compete in quotation marks is different. So there might've been things that it was okay to do at a grad level that people just weren't intimidated by because you're just a grad student. And it's like, oh, wait, now you're the face of something. Mm-hmm. Um, or now, you you know, do you know what I mean? I yeah, know. no, I, I do. I, and I, another thing I was thinking about also, as you're talking about your positionality changing, I was thinking about Yaz and like the complaint that I've also seen from people is that even though Yaz's case is sort of like the center, like she oddly gets sidelined. Mm-hmm. And yet if we're thinking on a meta level, it seems only too appropriate that although this should be about Yaz's career, it ends up being about Bill's like crumpledness mm-hmm. and that there's something about her visibility as a black woman that makes her a pawn, but then she also doesn't get to have even the narrative space that she supposedly is also set, even that, like, even though she's setting the action into motion, like she also can't have agency in it at the same time mm-hmm. in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I do wish that we got to see more of her but also it's like on the meta way it does sort of weirdly appropriate and in fact i wanted to just look back and say like the whole meta thing with bill is like there's basically this whole subgenre of like writing about universities that is always about like white men usually in english departments who are like you know writing thinly veiled versions of themselves and how as middle-aged men they feel a little bit impotent they don't quite connect with their their mm-hmm. their children and their their wives aren't as into them but like oh there's these sexy young co-eds and mm-hmm. like oh they feel like they're not as relevant anymore it's just so difficult and so in a way it was like the sort of weird thing that even the campus novel ended up or the campus show ended up still revolving on the same character because like the genre itself is so overdetermined by that type of guy who also thinks that he's like better than most of them, but actually he's kind of terrible. And like because he thinks he's better, it actually makes it worse in some ways because he's not like clearly an enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he thinks he's better. Um, that reminded me of how, you know, he could have solved all this by apologizing the first time and where he refused yes. to. Yeah. And, and he was just spiraled because he thought he could handle it. Yeah. And. He- so there, there's just so much. Um, I the the other part about the chair's experience is like the idea of motherhood and like making all these choices about where you're gonna be and knowing, you know, the advice that I hear a lot um, that is given to people, you either have to decide to be a good professor or a good or a good parent, or the converse is that you have to know that. Um, you're going to be a media, like a mediocre parent and a mediocre professor, and you're going to have to be okay with that. But I think it's this idea that you're always, you're always juggling. And this uh-huh. idea that you can have it all 
isn't quite as equal, even as it sounds that yes, you, you will sometimes feel like I'm not paying attention to my child or my partner or whatever, you know, people are in your family network, your personal life, your, your parents, friends, because you, yes, you went to that meeting or that mixer to advocate and do some work or I went home and I didn't write that grant because I didn't write that grant. I didn't get funded or and that can affect my tenure or I didn't go up for full or I didn't do amount of amount of things. And so I think seeing her really try to struggle to balance all of that, let alone that, that backstory about how, Oh, you could have married this. You could have been at U Michigan married. Yeah. <laughs> with um, Daniel day, Kim, no less. <laughs> Daniel day, Kim. And I was like, who's this? <laughs> yeah. It's who like it's it's hard part for me to tell if I actually enjoyed watching it to be honest. Mm. And because I was just thinking about that. so much of it and like yeah, I think for me I enjoyed the experience of being able to do it with my friends, but mm-hmm. I can't say necessarily pleasurable. What was sort of funny in that regard? Oh, like Joan I think was also such an interesting character, the older white woman. Like because on the one hand I think it sets up so perfectly the way that the older white woman it is subject to all this misogyny and like she can be an important advocate, but also she could be terrible in these other ways all at the same time. Like it's just, I thought that they, they, they managed to capture something very, very real in that. Mm-hmm. And the, <laughs> I was thinking about how um, she had a banter with some of the senior old white men that like realistically, like, no, that was sexist. That was harassment. But, you know, I think some, she even mentioned this at this point. She was just so used to it mm-hmm. that if somebody, like, tried to grab her butt or something, she just kind of, like, responded in kind. Or, like, I don't, I can't remember the exact scene, but she kind of had these, like, these kind of moments where she said to them the F off or she just kind of, like, brushed it off. And yeah. I was thinking about, like, the ways in which she had just kind of, like, yeah, I'm, this is a part of the thing. And how now we're like, no, that's not a part of the thing. You should react in a certain way to that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And it was yeah. funny that even we had that moment where the the horrible old guy we see his wife and he admits like that they even he recognizes the sexism that denied her tenure. Mm-hmm. And that and same department, I think. Yeah, and that was such an interesting moment. It really was. It <laughs> so much of it. Um, I could see colleagues. I could see former faculty, um, mentors. And then I thought, am I seeing myself, Hmm. (laughs) you know, like a Christmas Scrooge, like past, present and future self. Um, and do I like that? Mm -hmm. And can I avoid that? You know, something I've always thought about, there's this idea of like trying to change a structure institution from within slash the idea versus the idea that institutions just cannot be changed. And you mm-hmm. have to rebuild from a new, right? There's, there's like these kind of ideas about how you make change in institutions and like, what can you really do against structural racism? Yeah. Um, structural sexism and such. And I think about the fact that I am, I have ascended and I keep seeming to ascend in academia. Uh-huh. And as I go, <laughs> she's ascending. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean? That how do I reckon with my sense of self and identity and the things that I cared about when I started this whole journey, what what's happening to me as a human being as I 
learn more and grow more and have more experiences, mentoring people, working, um, feeling both precarious and more stable than I've ever been in my life because I do have great health insurance now and I have a, a salary that, so I can get sick now and I'm not scared about getting sick mm-hmm. and not being a privilege. Or how does that change my viewpoint? And am I even going to notice when it changes? Or am I going to be what I have recognized, you know, before, like people are like still thinking of themselves as like the bottom of the totem pole and they're really like the top of the totem pole yes. behaving like they're the bottom of the totem pole. Like that mentality never leaves. Yeah. Like you're so used to being the underdog. You don't realize that you're now the gatekeeper. And so I think that scares me or I'm, I don't know what to do with that. So I keep it in the back of my mind. Um, and every time I'm actually critical of something or someone, I, I try to think about that. Yeah. yeah. For better or worse. <laughs> no, I think it's, it is so difficult and it's so difficult to explain. Like I remember, for instance, I was used to be part of this one online group that was for like, basically like socially aware Asians. Mm-hmm. But like, I just remember one time this one person posted like, oh, my my professor is the only woman of color in our department and she's Asian. But at one point she said like European instead of white, is this problematic? And then people were like, yeah, that's totally problematic. Like she's basically a white supremacist. She's not naming whiteness and all this way. And, and mm. then she's like, yeah. And, and I was like, probably like she's giving the lecture. She may have been tired. And sometimes you have to specify where the whiteness is coming from. Like European whiteness is different from American. Mm-hmm. And yet in this moment, everyone is just like, this is the rubric by which we judge. And even though like there was this recognition that she's the only woman to call the whole department, she's had different burdens or like in the end, we still want her to be up to this particular standard of virtue. Mm-hmm. But then also as, Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. It scares me. But I think the the fear is something I try to use to galvanize the thought and the critical assessment. Mm. It's something to remind myself that I may need to read that the evaluation is something that's continual and not something I'll yeah. ever feel like I've reached some part where I never have to evaluate myself anymore. That's very true. Like I've been trying to write the, I've been writing a statement for my department that has to do about pedagogy, and I think part of it has to has to do with underlying a, a type of approach to pedagogy that doesn't have to do with authority, but more about fallibility mm. and about fallibility as a necessary and conscious and critical stance of continual evaluation for all of us. And so I think like that's part of what sometimes tends to happen generationally is that like the academics think like I have to be the source of authority. Um, and so I can't, I can't say that I'm in, I'm fallible because then if I make a mistake, then I'm not the authority anymore. But then also the students are thinking like, because they're the authority, they have to be absolutely right. And if they do anything that's wrong, then they can't be the authority. And actually Mm -hmm. like the entire framework of the authority is not the way to, is a red herring almost that is setting everyone up for failure in terms of like a type of perfection and a type of dominance and submission that you're expecting. Mm -hmm. I like this. It seems like, you know, besides the um, <laughs> real um, moment of this is triggering because it's reminding me of something that was painful that I did not want to revisit or reminding me of a story that happened to myself or to a friend because we share our stories. And mm-hmm. there's this moment of critical reflection of like, why are these things happening? And um, 
the inevitability of some of it or like some of these are like things we can change and other things are like this is the system and and how do we really go about these structures and so it so in that way this this um show felt like work because yes. i was critically assessing and processing <laughs> i don't know if it was enjoyable it was cringeworthy and it, mm-hmm. but it was thought provoking for me mm-hmm. and if anything it's a moment to go hey hey see how this person was treated do you see that now don't do this again <laughs> mm-hmm. i guess one thing i found weird is also like i thought the show did do a good job of pulling out so much of which is uncomfortable and cringe but then the happy ending seemed very weird oh, that was what felt out of place for me yeah, like, see, but the thing is, like, I don't think it was a happy ending, but it seemed like it wanted us to think it was a happy ending, and mm. so that quite confused me. Mm-hmm. That's true. I could, I don't know what to make of that. Like, it's like, yay, Joan took over. Um, I guess Yaz might go to Yale. Like, I, I like, I don't know. It's like for a show that did for like that was uneven, but did draw out a lot of like awkward things. It seemed to end in a way that maybe tried to pretend it wasn't awkward and then for, therefore just amplified awkwardness. I don't know. Maybe that goes intentional. No, it and did also, have this upbeat yeah. kind of ending. Like, why is she drinking coffee with Bill? I know. After all he's done, he's still going to be your love interest? Please. Yeah, why is he still a love interest? I mean, babysitter, maybe. <laughs> he seemed to be adequate at that. Yeah, but. he would be a great babysitter. <laughs> but the rest, like, I loved it when the two Korean ladies were like, just ripping him to shreds, being like, uh, whatever, this crumpled man, him. Uh. And then, like, of course, they sort of, like, ended up swimming back around. But then I was still like, no, the, your first assessment was correct, actually. Last bus in town. <laughs> yeah. It was weird. And then having Joan be the um, chair. Because, you know, the interesting thing is she may have been chair before. It's very unlikely. Yeah. I mean, like they said that um, Ji Yoon's character was the first. But at the same time, like... I don't know. It it was sort of it was weird. It's so definitely something mm-hmm. white feminist about it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also for our listeners who may already know that, like the idea that Yaz getting scouted for any of the Ivies as being her ticket out of there is so perverse as well, because so many. People of color, women of color especially, get denied tenure at these places because the structural racism and sexism is so embedded. Mm-hmm. And so my, my thought like was like the show was also portraying like, oh, and then Yale, like, yay. But then I was thinking like, oh, my God, I know so – like they hired a whole cohort of academics of color and none of them got tenure and people left because they couldn't bear it there. Like – Yeah. Like that, I was just thinking like the reality of it is like this is not a joyful thing. People and I know actually- in that situation like are stressed all the time. I, I'm glad you brought that up, Zion, because um, it seems like a lot of times that's also common where people will feel so dis like it's not working here and the solution is to leave. And you go to a, something that presumably is a greener pasture. And the reality is there's no such thing as a greener pasture for a person of color in academia. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you could you could argue that. Um and I saw that as like, she's really struggling. She just wants to belong. She wants someone to do right by her. Um, and 
But I thought about what the actual harm to her was and even having to make that choice. Because even if she moves, you have to restart your program. What if she had family and friends and like a whole network? It takes so long to make your social network again in Mm -hmm. academia where you're constantly moving. And it is Mm -hmm. not trivial to say moving all of that and starting over all over again. Like there's no amount of money. Okay, maybe there is. But (laughs) to some extent, to really kind of make up for being in a space where you had a home and, and a place that you wanted to be. And so I kind of saw this in a different lens of like, it, you know, even if it was a great university and she got a great package, there's still harm being done and having to move. And yeah. really you're just going to then have to deal with a different type of racism and sexism. It's just going to, the flavor is going to be different, but it's still ice cream. And so if you're lactose intolerant, it's still going to hurt. And yeah. um or maybe like ice cream might be too nice. It's like the poo is still poo, even if it's flavored like ice cream. Yeah. Sorry, I'm very childish. Even if you, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Even if it's a baby's poo, it's still poo. And I don't know, <laughs> adult. I don't know. But you get it. And so there's so many people will tr- think that you try to leave and try and make the situation better. And leaving is not the right answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, leaving shouldn't have to be someone's last resort to have justice yeah like or like it's not that simple that being like it's like it's complicated because i definitely have people in my life who the leaving was the right decision in terms Mm -hmm. of like the balance of evils and we both know that and but then we also know people who who did make this choice who were and it still it just hurts in different i don't know it hurts in different ways or i see people who like um couldn't stay, had to leave. And so the next university is somewhere that's like thousands of miles from their family Mm. and it's a better job, but now they're more isolated and the choices you kind of have to make in to survive in academia. I guess I I just wanted that personal aspect, that human aspect of what that move would mean to, Mm -hmm. to be a real thing because they're real people and this idea of poaching is not new in, in academia where they'll they'll take you. They see a bright and they'll they'll do that, but you know, it's it's still really hard to assess like who values you and how far that value's gonna go. Yeah. From the beginning, when things like this accrue over time and happen. So people can give you really great scripts and tell you. Um, and I think that kind of uh, kind of goes to this idea of just not knowing, like, how do you know it's a good space? What's the green book for academics? Mm. And I, I'd even say, like, just thinking about it, there's also a way that perhaps those places are trying to poach Yaz because they want to use her for the optics precisely yes. in the same way that have been going wrong, right? Because mm-hmm. there's also a thing where, like, not only do uh, universities like to, like, poach, like, up-and-coming scholars, they also want to poach, like, up-and-coming black and brown scholars because they're like, oh, we need more people of color. But rather than making, like, having more people of color than the same, perhaps, uh, people in elite positions get shuffled around mm-hmm. and actually yep. once you take them out then you actually deprive an entire ecosystem of of an academic of color as mm-hmm. opposed to like you know making more positions for for more scholars of color in general yes making where they're not by themselves hiring and retaining and retention mm-hmm. um and so this is a really important work in institutions that when you're trying to work inside you're thinking about recruitment and retention and what that actually means and then trying to dismantle the 
the old standards of what it means to say someone's doing a good job because there's mm-hmm. all these other sorts of ways that we why is it so easy to not give certain people tenure who's making those rules and decisions and, and, and you know how do we actually do inclusivity and equity and diversity into those because you can't just only do it when you hire you can't just give the startup package and say you did your your justice and then put them yes. in a system that is really just going to make them leave in three more years to get the next money again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some of this is, you know, STEM versus humanities happening, but I think those trends, you know, it's, it's painful to, to go through that process over and over. Um, yeah. I guess out of curiosity then, um, since you're the, the scientist, do you feel like <laughs> Like, what would a STEM version of the chair be like? Do you feel like it would still play out in very similar ways? Or? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I thought so. I mean, um, maybe more graduate student student dramas, um, but because I, I, th- I think it would be interesting to see the see a lab. I think. Oh, sorry, of Yadi. Wow, it's the classroom. Okay. You could you could still maybe have a teacher do something that. Bill did in the classroom. You could certainly mm-hmm. say racist or sexist things, um, anti-Semitic things in the classroom. Um, the TA doesn't have the same kind of role. Like a lot, like this, my, as an example, my TAs don't have recitations. They don't lead any class sessions. They just they help grading and mm-hmm. office hours. Um, but those kinds of things can happen, and um, students based on their level of activism, yes, can do things. They do things like this. They do. Um, They are organized. They are active. So I think it just varies with the student body. But Mm -hmm. um, these are things that I have experienced. I guess one thing. Sorry, go ahead. No, you you were going to talk about your experience. No, I just said that it made sense. I I, I could Uh, see this. And I think the humanity of, um, not the humanities, but thinking about the humanity Mm -hmm. of people in leadership, I've been very much like reflecting on like, why do people, how did this situation turn out this way? How did this happen? And how is it that the best intentions don't always lead to the best outcomes? Yeah. And it's really kind of both being more reflective of, when I've been in the trainee situation and there's been like someone in leadership making decisions and it's particularly been relevant for me now that I'm in more of a leadership faculty position and thinking about how students are perceiving me, how I perceive senior faculty, right? I'm like in the middle of another kind of privilege sandwich, power sandwich, Uh. (laughs) and um, which is not tasty at all. It's very uncomfortable. So it just it just makes you think about this a lot, and um, and I can see all the ways in which we both do and do not understand each other, and like personality yes. matches um, frequently coming against things where I think there's a solution that like has like a logical like, well, if we just did this, it'd be so much better, and it's like, mm, but we can't do that, or this might be an interpersonal issue, and not like a strike like another like a let's make more forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's well. Maybe this will be more for our student academic discussion. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna bracket that for now. But definitely doing my major, my first major admin role this past year, 
made me think a lot about like what my head of department is going through that even if you don't see eye to eye on things like appreciating what it means to have to be treading the middle ground and you know care having a duty of care to all the constituents regardless of where they are on the spectrum of of a particular issue and how difficult that is mm-hmm. yeah oh my, my student self so that's how I feel now. And I reflect sometimes because it is a mental shift for me because student self would have said, no, no, you have a, you have a mission. You got to go. You have to do these things. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. The, you have to represent both things. Um, and so sometimes I kind of battle like what I think student me would have said to this versus what I'm saying now. And like, how have I changed? How have I changed? Like, why does this feel so weird? And mm-hmm. um, how do I, how do I create balance with those, you know, honoring my, my student postdoc self and then honoring like this new role I have, Mm -hmm. which can also fit, you know, I guess we have another episode coming up. So we've been talking for a very long time and the chair was, (laughs) it was not funny. (laughs) Our conversation was very deep. Um, but, um, it's been good to see you. Mm -hmm. We're looking yes. at each other right now and we're talking. Looking at each other. We actually tried to, because before like Zencaster now has this thing where we can actually see each other on camera. Mm-hmm. So it's like a little bit easier to communicate. And once it, like one of our previous episodes, <laughs> I recorded it, but then we both look so horrible in the, in the, in the video that I did put it off on our Patreon, but I couldn't find a screen. Like every screen. We couldn't find a screenshot horrible. we agreed on. And I know we, and I was like, I'm terrible. too vain for this. Because I never keep my eyes open uh, for whatever reason. And, I know. Um, or like I didn't keep both of them open at the same time and right oh, the way away. You were like, this is sexy. Uh, no, it wasn't sexy at Suggestive. all. It, no, it wasn't. It was just like, <laughs> I have an eye problem. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so you're not, it was like, first we thought, oh, bonus content. But it's actually like, no, that was, that was kind of crap. <laughs> it is bonus. It's a bonus to see us. I think I even put on lipstick. So yeah, there you go. Hey, I put on lipstick No lipstick too. today. Well, I mean that last time. Uh, this time, this uh-huh. time is struggle best me. Struggle mm-hmm. month me. Um, it's I only September. Every month is struggle month. Every day is a struggle. That's what I say all the time. I'm like, oh, yeah. that sounds like anxiety and depression. <laughs> no. You can't be struggling every day, can you? And I'm like, wait, academics. Yes, you can. Oh, yay. <laughs> but... I'm I'm glad that Sandra O oh got to be the head of another vehicle, and yeah. like th- that's something that she's talked about being so heartbreaking after Grey's Anatomy that people said there'd be all these roles for her, but then like she got no calls, and it was only when it, like um, Killing Eve happened that she finally got this really good opportunity, and I really hope that's something that we do see more for her because I'm definitely seeing that Jodie Comer mm. is getting like a lot of roles, but like yeah, is is Sandra O oh getting the roles that she deserves now? Mm-hmm. She deserves yeah. it. And they filmed at the chair in Pittsburgh. Um, oh. And they filmed at this um, Chatham University, which is a really nice place in, in Pittsburgh. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting. Oh, cool. I was wondering where they did it. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping there's a season two. Yes. She did and maybe- some live stream of it. And I'm like, wait, I think I know that intersection. Is she in Pittsburgh? <laughs> Oh, wow. Though, see, yeah, season two, definitely Sandra O's character should make a STEM friend. Mm. <laughs> okay, at that point, we will know that they are just cribbing from us. Who should they play? Who should play me? I mean, 
Yeah, who would play the Liz character? Mm. Who is like, what celebrity, has there ever been a celebrity that people thought you were like? Every black female singer. Every dark-skinned female female singer. Oh, yeah. Is there is there one that you would be excited to be portrayed by? Maybe that's the way know. to put it? I think they should be like a bit comical. I'm thinking of someone and I can't think of who it is. It's like someone who was on The Good Place. Um, let me see if I can. Uh, it was the like one who played the professor? The black woman. Yeah, she was the academic. She was also the academic. She was Chidi's Chidi's ex-girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. She'd be kind of cool. But I'm looking it up now since. Trying to remember her. I don't remember what her name was. Um, And you can tell I'm really bad with names because I'm bad with names. Simone Garnett. Oh, Oh, wait, no. That's the character's name. And it's played by Kirby Hal Baptiste. That's who it should be. So Kirby Hall Baptiste, you should be <laughs> doing the, the chair's version of Liz Stem. on the tenure track, setting up her lab on the other side of campus. It's good to have interdisciplinary friends. It, it really is. It's, it's very helpful. Um, oh, gosh. Dr. Chia, remember we interviewed Carissa yes, last year yeah. began the pandemic. And she's coming to, well, it's going to be a virtual panel. Um, so she's going to talk about anti-Asian. Um, um movements protest um you see how i I, i'm actually really i'm embarrassed now let me look up the actual title because what i said didn't make any sense no no i think you're talking about what the because the study that she's doing about the impact of anti-asian racism right yes so the title anti-asian racism and solidarities of resistance so there's a panel um but i'm happy that she's coming to campus and that was a direct feedback from our being on the PhD was podcast. Ooh. And uh, I'm also excited because very soon Zion, Professor Yao's book, Disaffected, is coming out. So I cannot wow. wait to read it. And then we can talk about it. And I could try to be like a book interviewer and ask you some questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. How are you feeling? Oh my God. Yes, we will we'll have to do that. Oh, okay, stress, stress, stress. I have to okay, find myself. Never mind. Oh my gosh, she's stress, she's stress fanning herself. Never mind, just kidding. Okay. Don't mention okay. it. Yes. Okay. I'm excited though. It's a it's it's good. I'm happy for you. Thanks. And all the things going on in your life right now. Yeah. Well take care of yourselves, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Yes. Following us on our journey and all these next steps. Um, yeah. I'm excited to make the image for this episode. I think I'm going to have, I'm going to take the screen, the the, the picture where it's like San, Sandra O's character and Yaz, and then I'm just going to paste her faces on top of it. <laughs> Not subtle, but I think it works. <laughs> I, I think that would be great. A great use okay. of Photoshop or like just, yeah. Paint. MS Paint. I'm not a Photoshop model. MS Paint. <laughs> okay. Well, this okay. has been the PhD this podcast. And um, Professor Liz Wayne. Pro- professor Zion Yao, although technically in the UK, <laughs> I can't say I'm a professor until I'm full prof. But oh well. Next time. Bye. Yeah. PhD of his podcast has been going strong for five years. We are more excited than ever about the world of podcasting as academics. We want to keep bringing you great content, and to do that, we need your help with the cost of production. 
That's right, Zai. Through Patreon, you will support our 2020 vision for PCBus podcast. Better features, new equipment, and you'll get exclusive access to original content like the bloopers reel for this ad, by the way, and our reading list and outtake. Propose an episode. Get a special shout out. Yeah, exciting. This is all going to be. Help us take the podcast to the next level. Click on the Patreon link to find out the many ways that you can support us. And as always, even if you can't support us financially, you can always help out by following us on Facebook and Twitter under Page Divas Podcast. It helps a lot when you rate us and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.